0: Is Me,
1: Myself and Disaster, the show all about disasters with a human focus. From hurricanes to humanitarian issues, we journey across fault lines to explore trends in disaster preparedness, response, and recovery. Over to you, Josh and Andrew.
2: Hello, and welcome back to Me, Myself and Disaster, the show where we talk all things disaster with a human focus.
1: Today on the show, we've put together the best of season three with the insights to prepare you for the year ahead. We spoke to so many great guests this season and trying to decide which segments to include was really tough. But here it is, a snapshot of season three on me, myself and disaster. We started the season with a trip to northern Japan, to the city of Ishinomaki, where we met with Richard Halberstadt. Richard is the director of the Katawaki Elementary School Ruins, a site heavily impacted by the 2011 earthquake and tsunami. We asked Richard about his first-hand experience and the impact of Japan's giant seawalls which have since been constructed
2: the 11th uh, of March, 2011, you know, for some people, they may not know about that date, but for here in Japan, it's a very sombering kind of date for for many here. Um, That was obviously the day that the tsunami struck this area. And you were actually in this area on that day. Can you take us through your personal recollection of that day and and the days that ensued after that?
3: Yeah, well, uh, as you say, I mean, it's it's the equivalent of the assassination of JFK in the States, really. I mean, it's Mm. just engraven in our memory. It's the the, the time down to the second, really. Um, And um, as I said, I was working in Ishinomaki Senju University as a lecturer at the time. And because the thing happened on a Friday afternoon, um, I was actually at work in the university, which was a very lucky place to be in Mm. um, because I actually didn't have to go into work that day because you can imagine that March 11th is spring break. So unless you had something to do at work, you didn't have to go in. And I didn't have anything to do that day. But I just... Just for some reason, when I woke up, I decided I'm going to be a good boy and and, and (laughs) go in. But that was a really lucky decision because if I had actually been in my um, apartment Mm. when the thing struck, I would have been okay because I live on a high floor, but I would have ended up being isolated by the floodwaters and not able to leave and needing to be rescued by by the self-defence forces. Um, And not only that, my car would have been submerged and I'd have lost that. Yeah. But as a result of going to work, I went to work in my car. My car was safe. I was safe. uh, Because none of the tsunami waters actually flooded into the campus. They came quite close, but not into it. So I was in the best place I could be, really, which was, you know, I feel like I used up my whole life's (laughs) luck in that one day just just, just to get through it like that. Yeah. Um, And then, uh, so... Initially, I just was forced to stay at the university because the whole city was flooded. Mm. Um, it, you know, an hour after the quake, the, the, the tsunami came and just flooded everything. So um, I was forced to stay at the university along with various other members of staff and teachers and a few students as well. Um, so we were just sleeping in, in, in the staff room on the cold floor um, and just wrapping up as warm as we could with all the clothes that we had. Um, and uh, I was at the university for about three days. Um, and we, we sort of shared food that we had and some supplies started to get delivered a couple of days later, like from from our sister university in Tokyo and so on. Um, And uh, then about three days afterwards, an Ishinomaki friend came to look for me partly to check that I was okay um, and partly to say that our mutual friend uh, who runs the biggest hotel here in Ishinomaki, it's called Ishinomaki Grand Hotel um, that he had turned the hotel into an evacuation shelter and let's go and meet him and so we did that mm. um, the the city was still flooded to a certain extent so it was like you know walking through a n- nuclear war and a lot li- annihilation sort of scenario just still water mud everywhere and and cars stuck into building windows it was just you know devastation um so that was very depressing because you you kind of felt like oh this is the end for Ishinomaki we're not gonna get over this um but we made it to the hotel um and my friend of course because he's worried about me he said oh you should stay here so that became my my evacuation shelter yeah um for for, for for some days afterwards.
1: As we're driving in today, it was really fascinating looking at Google Maps and seeing, like I said to Josh, let's go and drive past the ocean on the way and sort of see what see where we are, get our bearings. But there's actually these giant concrete barriers that are, I guess, for our listeners listening today, they're kind of um, from the roadside like an angular, almost a little concrete hill facing towards the water, and that was covering um, several kilometres of roadway as we as we came in today. How's the community react to that? I mean, there's probably, I guess, some discussion around initially um, they've lost now, I guess, that amenity by the sea, but a sense of protection now. What's What's been the reaction initially? And then I'm keen to ask you as well about has that set itself up for some sort of complacency around, we've got this great protecting concrete wall here, but will it actually protect us from the next big tsunami?
3: Yeah, that, that's another difficult one that, that, you know, you could talk about from so many viewpoints. Um, and certainly, I mean, you, you've, you've got it in one in the sense that these big concrete walls blocking out the views of the sea have been a very big point of contention, I mean, in the whole area, not just Ishinomaki. Um, and so when they were de- deciding whether to build them or not, there were a lot of um, dissenting opinions. Um, and the, the main one being that we, we love the views of the ocean, we don't want them to be blocked out. And, and damage the natural environment and so on. Um, and then just other, other opinions like it costs so much to build these things and couldn't that money be used for better purposes? And the the biggie for me, because I'm not 100% in favor of them myself, is that there's no guarantee that they can stop future tsunami. Because you look at the um, example of of a town in the prefecture north of Miyagi, where they already had a really big flood wall when 2011 happened, and they were convinced that could stop any tsunami, basically. I wouldn't say they were complacent, but they just thought they were okay. Um, And the tsunami that came just immediately broke down the the flood wall. Um, And if it had just been that, it would have been as if the flood wall wasn't there. Mm. But it was worse than that because that broken down flood wall became debris and that ended up crashing into other buildings and so all these blocks of concrete um, causing damage. So that ended up causing more damage than if there hadn't been a flood wall in the first place so as far as the flood walls that we have in Ishinomaki goes then they may stop a tsunami which would be fantastic but they may you know cause more damage there's just no way of of reading it so my personal feeling is do we really need them Um, and but in return for that, if I say we don't need them so much, then I need to take personal responsibility for my safety and be prepared to evacuate to high ground and do things by the book in the event of a disaster. And I can't just rely on the city to protect me. Um, so uh, it's, it's a very difficult argument because there isn't a right or wrong. It's a very much a gray zone. Although I would say that, I mean, in, there were people that were against buildings and flood walls, but eventually they ended up being built. But Japan is a relatively um, docile society, you could say. Um, so, so even the people that were against it, when it happened, then it was a bit of, oh, well, it can't be helped. They've, you know, it's, it's up. We can't do anything about it kind of thing. So they weren't huge demos in the streets or anything like that.
1: When significant disasters like the tsunami do happen, we rely on insurance to provide a level of economic resilience. But what happens when we are continually impacted by severe weather events and insurance premiums become unaffordable? We spoke with Aaron Levy and Sean Lenore from the US Federal Emergency Management Agency, or FEMA, to find out more. What we're doing in, in Australia, we've seen recently we've had these shocking floods that have continued now with three La Nina um, weather systems for now three years in a row. And so lots of parts of Australia have flooded. And we're seeing this as, as unfortunately, very unequal in terms of there's there's flooding that's impacting those low-lying areas. And everyone who lives in a low-lying area um, is often on the on the lower socioeconomic end of the scale compared to those who are on the hills and the high areas. And we're finding that insurance is in many ways, really helps people to build back and to have that level of resilience and financial resilience that those who don't have insurances don't have. They're stuck, they rely on government support, um, they can't rebuild as easily. But we're finding now that a lot of those areas that have flooded, premiums are about 20, 30 grand a year. People can't afford that. So even if you're you're sort of wealthy, 30 grand a year for insurance is a lot. People just don't want to take that risk. So what Well, I guess what's happening in the United States in terms of insurance, do you see those same challenges in terms of the uninsurable becoming a larger part of the population? And how do we work with those communities
4: that can't get insurance to actually build their own resilience? Yeah, absolutely. So I'll take this question in two parts. So I think you all just identified something that I think many countries throughout the world are facing, which is regarding how are you... How are you measuring risk, right? So, not to get all wonky here, but I think, gentlemen, what you just described is really how do we measure risk, and how do we pass the costs on for that risk to the people who reside in whatever country you might live in? So, I know for us, we have the National Flood Insurance Program in the United States, which is I like FEMA is the financial backstop to the program, Um, but you know most people buy their flood insurance through insurance companies through some of our big private sector insurance companies here in the United States, and this huge debate that is continuously going on in the halls of our our Congress, our Parliament, um, to to use the analogy, and in the private sector and in government is, you know, should people be paying for their actuarial risk? Can you make the program actuarially sound? And if you do that, you know, going back to some of the communities that, that, that Sean talked to, You're going to be in a position where you're going to have people who are living in floodplains that are severe, repetitive flood areas who are going to see their insurance rates skyrocket through the grounds, going from hundreds of dollars a year to tens of thousands of dollars a year. And I don't think there's a local elected official or a state elected official or a federal elected official or even civil servants like us that want to see that happen. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to help those communities buy down their risk. And one of the ways that we're doing that is through a program called the Building Resilient Infrastructure and Communities Program, or the BRIC program. So this is something that one thing I got to give our Congress credit for is when it comes down to FEMA, in the aftermath of every major disaster, Congress usually comes through, Sean's nodding along, and gives us new authorities and new capabilities to try and help those communities better. So I want to give Sean the chance to jump in here. But what I would say, here's the summary. The BRIC program, again, Building Resilient Infrastructure and Communities, this is designed to support states, local communities, tribes, and territories. The program seeks to shift the federal focus from reactive disaster spending towards research-supported, proactive investment in community resilience. So when a hurricane, flood, wildfire, extreme heat, or other disaster occurs, communities are more resilient. Um, BRIC incentivized mitigation investments that reduce risk and increase mitigation, including expanding the use of insurance to manage risk through funding mitigation projects, particularly ones that reduce risk to infrastructure. And just for example, in in fiscal year 2021, um, 360 applications were selected, totaling $65.7 million across 53 states. States and territories, and that's just the beginning. Um, in this last fiscal year, gentlemen, we're due to distribute hopefully up to 2.3 billion. So again, not an easy answer for the insurance problem, but what we're trying to do is use these new funding and new authorities that our Congress gave us to help those communities buy down risk. Yeah, and I think you know,
5: Aaron, to your point, when we talk about you know what. I'll, I'll say what assistance were provided, what tools and resources were provided uh, by Congress and in our country. You know, I want to focus on the, F- the FEMA Flood Mitigation Assistance Program. Um, this a- this program annually will provide an alternative revenue for communities in the Build Back Better. Um, this is going to include $3.5 billion in funding over the next five years being available. And within the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, this not only increased the yearly assistance funding, it went from $160 million to $800 million uh, in annual funding. Uh, The Flood Mitigation Assistance is a competitive grant program, but it provides the funding to the states, to the local communities, and federally recognized tribes and territories to build back better at that $3.5 billion. Funds can also be used, which is this is an important part, for projects that reduce or eliminate the risk of repetitive flood damage to buildings insured by the National Flood Insurance Program. So this goes back to Aaron's great point about are you living in a high-risk community, high-risk area, and what does that look like for projects when we want to know that from a mitigation perspective, we want to reduce the likelihood or if we can eliminate altogether the risk of repetitive flood damage uh, to our buildings. And that is with new building codes that FEMA has rolled out recently and some other initiatives and really, The intent here in America, you know, I believe is that we prepare our communities and we want to enhance our communities because at the end of the day, you know, whatever incident it is, is going to begin and is going to end at the community level. So from a federal government, the more the more that we can do to prepare communities and provide them with the support that they need, the more resilient they'll be
1: sharing information to those affected by a disaster is so important and we were so fortunate to have former Qantas captain Richard Krepny on the show to discuss how he handled an engine failure on an A380 flight out of Singapore in 2010.
2: So we all have this job around company brand and public messaging and obviously for us as emergency managers, the trust that the community has in us is our goal. That's how we thats our currency, that's how we trade because the next incident if we don't have that trust, people won't listen to us, people won't follow direction and people won't take us seriously. So talking Suri, because I think at one point you were actually, um, you know, this notion of taking control of the situation and controlling the narrative. Because I think at one point you were actually told not to leave the airplane, and 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 for, for you, you know, it was almost like this spy novel where you took your hat and smiled confidently at the security guard and said, "No, I'm I'm walking off here, and I'm going to address
6: my passengers." First of all, just two things. One is when you're in a crisis, as a general rule, when you think you've communicated enough, double it because yeah. you haven't. Um, You can't communicate enough. And we just kept talking to the passengers. Every 10 minutes, even if there wasn't any update, we told them, we gave them public address every 10 minutes. When I was getting instructions to the cabin crew about what was happening, I just pressed the global intercom button and every passenger heard what I was telling the pass- the cabin crew. Everyone knew what was going on. There was no one being kept in the dark. You tell them the truth because you can't hide it. It will eventually come out. If there's too many recorders now. You can't hide the truth. Get it out there and stop all the um, conspiracies from launching, right? Yeah. So that's the lesson. Just communicate through the crisis and and that will solve a whole lot of the problems. When it came to leaving the aeroplane after the two hours on the ground, uh, you're right, Josh, in that I walked down the stairs and I was in a heightened state of alarm And I was very stressed because I was convinced that I was about to be arrested. And there are so many cases that go on uh, in the last in the last 20 years that whenever there's an incident, the police will naturally just arrest the flight crew and take them away. This is the worst thing to do in a crisis. Mm. So I had I was predicting to be arrested. So I was going walking down those stairs and I looked at the police officer at the bottom and said, you will take me to the to the departure lounge in the terminal where the passengers are now. And I said it really loudly because if they were going to try and arrest me, I was going to fight them mm. and I was ready to fight. I was absolutely going to resist. So um, many pilots have been arrested. They'd lose the ability to talk to the passengers. They'd lose the ability to manage the crisis. And that's where a whole lot of problems start. So I had been prepared. And this is really the whole the whole thing about resilience in crises will always happen. Mm. if If we solve one, another one will come, and the pace of technology means we'll have more crises continuing to come, not less. This is not so much a bad time at the moment. there'll be crises coming forever. So the idea of managing crises is to first of all, be prepared to be resilient in the way you have are prepared to face these crises. and if you are resilient, in the preparation and the execution of the crisis management, you will absolutely come out uh, with the, hopefully like a brand in Qantas better than when it went in.
1: This season we also looked forward at some of the innovative ways technology can be deployed to reduce disaster risk and prevent disasters from even occurring. Associate Professor Roslyn Princely at the Australian National University in Canberra was inspired to lead this work after the Black Summer bushfires clogged the city with smoke. We spoke with Roslyn about the impact of climate change and some really innovative work they're doing to spot and extinguish bushfires in remote areas and reduce the impact of cyclones.
7: As we all know, and we just have to look at the news every day or look outside our door, um, the number of extreme events is increasing worldwide, even if we stop carbon emissions today. Mm. Uh, according to the World Meteorological Organisation, in the last 50 years, more than 11,000 reported disasters were attributed solely to weather, climate or water hazards globally, with just over 2 million deaths and $3.64 trillion in losses. So a disaster occurred every day in on average over the last 50 years. Um, The only thing is that the number of disasters has increased by a factor of five Mm. over the 50-year period driven by climate change, more extreme weather and improved reporting. Um, And the number of weather, climate and water extremes are expected to become much more frequent and much more severe in many parts of the world as a result of climate change. In fact, what I'm really worried about is if we continue on this trajectory, it's predicted that by 2030, which is not that far away, the world will face some fire 560 disasters per year and an additional 100.7 7 million people could be pushed into poverty by the impacts of climate change and disasters. Everyone will know that when we think about cyclones, we think that all we can, we can really do is run to a cyclone shelter and or make your house stronger, that sort of thing. Mm. But um, again, like oh, could we stop the cyclone? Like if we could stop that cyclone or divert it away from where it's going to hit infrastructure and people and other things we think are valuable, well, could we do that? Yeah. So we've um, recently, it's hopefully going to be published soon, um, published a big review of all the different ways that you might stop cyclones. So, again, we've got the cloud seeding approach, which looks to be quite promising. or um, sort of atmospheric aerosol injections do anyway. Um, we've got um, people have tried pipes to inject cool water into cyclone hotspots, so tropical cyclones tend to require sea sea surface temperatures above 26.5 to 35 degrees centigrade to form and at higher temperatures there's more water evaporation. Which is a key energy input into cyclone formation. So if we lower those sea surface temperatures, we get less evaporation and reduction in cyclone intensity or genesis. So that's something that has been tried, but we have a review that we don't think it's really feasible. We think it would be way too expensive and possibly wouldn't be too successful. It might have some pretty bad side effects, but it's a nice idea.
1: So is that giant pipes in the ocean, or where yeah. the pipes go? You put massive pipes out yeah. in the ocean, and yeah, and then, then you pump the cool expensive. water
7: up, right? And it have to be over a huge area. <laughs> (laughs) So, yeah, I think it's a good idea, but also it could have quite bad side effects um, of, you know, rain where you don't want it or no rain where you do want it and all that sort of stuff. So... um, And then there's injecting particles into the upper atmosphere, um, which would heat up the upper atmosphere and cool down the lower atmosphere. That's possible. But we think um, atmospheric aerosol injections are worth looking at, and we're actually looking at them at the moment. So um, we have um, this amazing um, researcher who... um, was the head of um, meteorology in Vietnam for a long time. She's now come here and done a PhD on cyclones and we have her working with some of the world experts on um aerosol injections and how they interact with the atmosphere, working with her from over the world to try to look at how, what is the best way to interfere with a cyclone and so it involves at the start a lot of modelling, so trying to understand how the cyclone works and where's the best place and time to intervene and what sort of effect you could have by intervening, but we think we've made a huge amount of headway in a short time and um, again there's that issue of well if we are successful we really need that governance framework to be right.
1: So much of the emergency management workforce around the world is made up of volunteers and leadership in this space is so important. We spoke to Dr. Daria Kraut, a leadership scientist and academic with years of experience working with emergency volunteers about how we can build volunteer leadership. A lot of volunteers in emergency management come from, I think we mentioned earlier, such diverse backgrounds. You've got people who are investment bankers and have like managing directors and they've got a lot of leadership experience. And then you've got people who haven't got that experience. Yeah. They might work in sort of a different type of job, where they don't manage people on a day-to-day basis. And all of a sudden they're kind of thrown in, often because the previous leaders quit. There's no succession plan and they've got to step up and just take over the last person standing pretty much. So for those sort of people, those people who really want to uh, take that step to, to be a leader of a unit or a brigade – What's your advice to people who have no leadership experience in the past? How can they kind of learn that skill of managing people at, I guess, a a quick rate to become a a leader and and change the culture to be a positive one?
8: Yeah, great, great question. And I think, you know, I would boil it down to the really, really basics, right? Because, you know, you don't want to start doing like big, bold things when this is your first time maybe and you're terrified or, you know, feeling a bit apprehensive about the whole thing. Um, So very, very simple, right? So there's two key foundational leadership behaviors. Really, it all boils down in the end of the day to two key behaviors. They're called task-oriented and relationship-oriented. Pretty self-explanatory, right? So task oriented behavior is where the leader is focused on the task, right? So what is the task? How are we going to accomplish it? It's more technical in sort of in its orientation. It's really about, you know, helping people to figure out, well, what the task is and how I want you, or how can we all together tackle the task and get about solving it. Right. So it's very, um, so it's managerial, you could say in sort of in its approach. Relationship oriented leadership style is more around relationship, building relationships with people, listening to people, understanding what people want, understanding what people's needs are and so on and so forth. Right? Um, so the trick is you need both. You need a good balance of both and really probably one of the hardest or one of the easiest sounding, but the hardest uh, areas in terms of application of this, As a leader is knowing which one to use when and 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 in which context and with which person, right? So if you're a new leader, you know, don't make it too complicated. It's you know it's already hard enough. Just remember you need task focus and you need people focus or relationship focus. And then really thinking about okay, where the, you know, let's say, where are we now in, in, you know, in the context, in volunteering context, and what do I really need to do, be doing now as a leader? So very, very simply, and in, in, as an example of this, if you are in, uh, you know, in a training session or on a social event in the unit and, you know, things are good, uh, you know, you should be focused on relationship building, right? You should be socializing, you should be talking to people and doing these sort of things. If you are on a fire ground and, you know, things are not going well, or it's a, Real emergency, you probably want to be more focused on tasks. But even that is not like a hundred percent, right? You still need the the form of other, but maybe to a lesser extent. Yeah.
1: So often people say that volunteering is dying. We spoke to Dr. Blythe McLennan from Natural Hazards Research Australia about the changing nature of the volunteer workforce in an attempt to better understand what's actually going on.
2: There's been a lot of comment in the media, and many of our listeners have probably heard it this term that volunteerism is dead or there is a decline in volunteerism
9: yes myth
2: myth because I like from from my understanding it's that we're transforming it's not declining it's transforming what's your thoughts on that And unpack that for our listeners
9: yeah okay really really important and really good question so yeah I'm with you volunteering is changing so if we are looking at formal volunteering the way you know or coordinated formal volunteering affiliated with an organization over a long period of time there's less of that kind of volunteering for Mm. sure but there is if you look at all the ways that people help and support others in their community beyond just their you know their inner circle their families and friends um the impetus and the motivation for people to do that isn't changing yeah so it's the ways they're doing it, and that's one of the issues with youth volunteering. You look at the people who are more used to that formal kind of high commitment, um, as in commitment, as in um, staying with one organisation for a long period of time style of volunteering. Look to young people and go, they're not volunteering, they're not. We can't recruit them, but they are doing amazing things in different ways. So it's about broadening our understanding. Of what volunteering looks like yeah. we do know people are busier too. like and when it comes to for example young people we look at the way they volunteer they're not committed to volunteering but you look at their paid work experience as well precarious gig economy a lot of mobility a lot of competition they don't stay with one employer for a long time they can't they have to mm. keep moving yeah. it's like um you know you're, you're like a shark you keep moving or you die in the workplace <laughs> more and more yeah and volunteering follows Similar trends, so yeah. It, it's um, yeah. So we need to look at it differently yeah. and broaden what we see. We also do need to understand though that it's it is there's pressures on people's time and commitment yeah. and accessibility of volunteering. We've got more dual income households. That also means that grandparents are busier helping out, looking after kids, etc. We've mm. got commu- long commuting from people kind of in the outskirts of the city. Um, we've got young people moving out of rural areas to get work and study in cities, etc. All of these things are impacted, but I, I don't think it's in decline. You'll see media reports saying things like school committees and sports clubs are struggling to find volunteers, and they speak about declining social capital, which is a yeah. kind of connections between social connections between us. But I think we need to look outside of those traditional structures of volunteering, and think a bit more innovatively about how people are contributing. To supporting communities for sure. Yeah, that's a very persistent sticky myth. Yeah.
2: I, I think. <laughs> there you go. Right here on me myself disaster myth busted.
1: Our final insight from season three was from a discussion with Dr. Albrecht Beck. He spent his career working for the United Nations and now has his own company, Prepared International. As the impacts of climate change hit communities disproportionately around the world, we look at disaster diplomacy and some of the work underway in the Middle East to improve collaboration and reduce disaster risk.
2: This whole notion of disaster diplomacy might not be something that's really kind of a known topic for people working in the domestic space in the Asia Pacific in 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 kind of emergency management but when you look at that international scale obviously disaster dis- diplomacy is a is a really big kind of topping and it's something that y- yourselves are obviously experts within and I was reading an article that really started to unpack the importance of trust in this space can you kind of help us understand in in this project in this initiative what trust meant to for success and how Trust actually built this project uh, to succeed at the end of the day.
0: Just thanks, yes. Uh, disaster diplomacy had been a little bit discussed uh, for some time, but it disappeared again from the agenda, unfortunately, because uh, from a disaster management point of view, of a disaster preparedness point of view, uh, for us it grows in importance because obviously climate change uh climate conflicts, related conflicts, all uh, need uh, stronger preparedness between conflicting parties uh, to stop this cycle of disaster and conflict. And as you mentioned, uh, I also see it same way. Trust is absolutely important. If you Mm. cannot build trust, uh, a real cooperation, a longer term cooperation with real effects will not be possible simply. Uh, In the dialogue uh, between Israel, Palestine and Jordan, obviously uh, was no trust in the beginning existing between the parties. Too too much has happened uh, between all uh, involved uh, and especially also why would a disaster manager start cooperating if he's uh, threatened by legal consequences by his own government. So there must be a a real strong trust existing before that is not uh, developed. That cannot happen. So there was the importance uh, in the beginning to build trust, obviously, between the, the facilitator of this dialogue and the individual parties, which was my, uh, myself as part of the UN in the beginning. And there we, we saw uh, the trust was both coming from uh, uh, neutrality uh, that was uh, seen in the facilitator, but also it was important to be shown as one of them, meaning a disaster manager. Somebody mm. who has a technical knowledge, who works with them on technical improvement that really can help them, not somebody who goes there to, to be the big mediator big in the media and then have, have a political outcome. The political outcome was for the disaster managers, not a topic in the beginning. It was yeah. a real effect on the ground. And the other one was obviously the trust between the parties, which was even worse and more difficult how should this start? And there it was important that uh, we had a lot of individual discussions with actors, making sure that the political field was not referred to in the meetings, that politics went really out of that and that they could all see uh, that there are people who mean it for real. In that case, it was very important uh, to, to have an Israeli counterpart who really uh, reached out to the Palestinian side and uh, was for them credible in being interested that something changes. So that mm. made a real de- difference in that case. And another point was, in fact, uh, with all these different trainings, uh, participation in foreign projects, and so on, they simply became a lot used to each other. So uh, we had times where the Israeli and the Palestinian counterpart were at least once a month traveling together. So they were a little bit getting accustomed to each other, learn to know yep. uh, the person behind the flag, meaning the real private person. And that over the years was very important to build this, to make sure they stay together. Even in situations like the we have currently, make sure there are at least weekly meetings, even if they might only be possible to... Uh, take place online, uh, that can every time gap that would be in between the cooperation could lead at the end uh, to a failure. So this is also nowadays, at this very moment, very important to make sure this continues and make sure it stays also outside of politics. And by this, we <laughs> build trust between at least individuals that other than the backbones that also the organizations can follow. And that's a wrap for
1: season three. We're looking forward to another busy season ahead. And if you have suggestions for topics or guests you'd like to see on the show, please get in touch via our website or email us at podcast at memyselfdisaster.com. Join us again next time on Australia's
2: Leading Disaster Podcast as we talk to more interesting guests from across the world about their experiences during disasters. We'll catch you then. Thanks
1: for listening to Me, Myself and Disaster. Subscribe today at
0: memyselfdisaster.com.